Sure, it may be cold, but hey, we've had four uneventful weeks in terms of weather. That's got to be some kind of a record. This is way over our heads, the Weather and Climate Podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I, I, that's a good point, Jim. Four weeks without much weather. That's <laughs> is this too? What year is it? It's an anomaly for 2019. Yeah, what year There's is no this? doubt about that. Of course, I suppose you, you know what you teed it off with too. It is cold. That's becoming yes. a bit of an event, isn't it? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. It certainly yeah. does not feel like. The uh, not even the middle of November. Yeah, yet. no, it's it's pretty wrong out there. I mean, yeah. we're talking, but it's Sunday, November tenth, yes, currently, yes. right? The eve of Veterans Day in Minnesota. So I uh, want to thank all of our veterans for their service. Yes. Uh, but yeah, if anyone listens to this on Monday, November eleventh, Veterans Day, two thousand nineteen, it will be brutally. <laughs> cold for November. I mean, yeah, sure, we've been colder at this time of year. And yeah, sure, there are other times of year that get colder, but we can't really mince words with this. It's cold. Any break in the cold on the horizon? Oh, yeah. It actually looks like uh, we're going to kind of bottom out Monday and Tuesday and then do that thing that you do after it's been cold where you kind of gradually... I'll try this one, decoldify. <laughs> or you gradually, you know, I, I, I don't want to call it warming up because it's not going to feel warm. But relative to where we've been, sure, it's going to become milder and milder. And by the end of next weekend, so about a week from now, we could actually be looking at, you know, not just highs, but lows above freezing. Okay. Whoa. I'll take yeah, that. Right. We haven't point, been there yes. in a while. Right. So, right. Yeah. Definitely, though, the cold air, you know, we don't have a lot of snowpack down uh, this evening, the Sunday. We did get some light snow, kind of a coating in southern Minnesota, Twin Cities and parts of southern Minnesota. Got enough to cover the ground and the temperature dropped fast enough that you see that shiny, nice shiny glare on the streets. Yes, yes. Indicating that uh, tap the brakes, tap the brakes. Drive carefully, uh, walk carefully. Yeah. Yes. Well, we mentioned Veterans Day, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention a major event in Minnesota weather history that took place on Veterans Day back in 1940. A major blizzard, a deadly blizzard. Yeah, oh, it's a doozy. Armistice Day. Yes. Ooh. Yeah, now that one, you know, it's interesting. We may have talked about this last year, but something about November 11th that really entices ferocious weather systems because of course you've got the famous witch of november yes 1975 yes on this date yes 1975 edmund fitzgerald got the edmund fitzgerald in 1998 a little lesser known but we had a kind of a super cyclone at the time it was our record-setting low pressure system and it actually you know, in Minnesota, was relatively harmless. All it did was bottom out like a hurricane and produce some strong winds. But in Wisconsin, those winds were lethal. People were blown to their deaths in parts of Wisconsin. Wow. So there were, yeah, um, kind of a single-digit number of fatalities in Wisconsin and dozens of injuries from that one. And that was 1998, same date, 9th, 10th, 11th, right in there. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the Armistice Day in 1940, which was a kind of, you know, started off with a nice day. Uh, People went out, they were duck and goose hunting, and then the cold front came through. Temperatures 
dropped and man all hell broke loose i mean there's no way to say i mean you had one to two inches of precipitation were pretty common and a lot of that came as snow some of it came as rain some of it came as ice the winds were 40 50 60 miles an hour with even higher gusts and so a lot of people were stranded and died it was a uh, you know it was kind of the the last major you know multiple dozens of fatality type storm events that we've had in minnesota um, at least a winter type storm system in fact that would be the the most recent of any weather event that to produce multiple dozens of fatalities in minnesota so uh brutal 1940 but also on November 11th, 1911, uh, many areas in the Midwest set their record for temperature drop. <laughs> temperatures, oh, wow. yeah, temperatures fell from the 60s and 70s, and this was especially bad in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Missouri. There was actually an outbreak in the warm weather. There was an outbreak of killer tornadoes affecting areas as close as Janesville, Wisconsin. And this is November this is 11th. November 11th wow. of 1911. But then what happened was the bottom absolutely fell out and temperatures dropped into the teens and single digits with, again, 60, 70, and 80 mile an hour wind gusts and full-on blizzard conditions into Missouri. And so this was a major crippling, lethal, uh, you know, again, dozens and dozens of fatalities, but that's over 100 years ago when those kinds of weather events were a little more common, at least in terms of the impact. But yeah, so there is something about this day, Jim. Yeah, the gales of November. That must uh, be kind of a true yeah. saying, just yeah, beyond the, the legend of the the song, the yeah, Gordon Lightfoot right. song, The Wreck of the Edmund it's Fitzgerald. Deeper than, than, but you know, the, the sort of wisdom that I guess he's he's kind of conjuring there is is real. People have known about you know, this time of year, the kind of turning of November storms, they can be brutal and they don't have to be in November and it doesn't have to be November 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. It could also be late October to late November, but there, there have been quite a few of them right on, this, right on these dates. So. Well, I did see an interesting social media post from the National Weather Service Twin Cities office today talking about a possible lake effect snow that would kind of be emanating to the southeast from Mille Lacs Lake. And we hear about lake effect associated with the Great Lakes. Is it somewhat unusual to have lake effect snow produced by a lake the size of Mille Lacs? Uh, it's probably not unheard of, but with the uh, high resolution radars that we have now, we, we can see them in ways that we didn't used to see it before. So, you know, maybe in the past we would just say, yeah, there's a snow squall you know, reported to the southeast of Lake Mille Lacs, and we wouldn't really know what it was, but now you can actually see it. Uh, a system like that will never be able to compete with the kinds of lake effect snows that you get around the Great Lakes. You think of Buffalo, New York, or even, even you know, Duluth, but more so the, the South Shore in Wisconsin and in Michigan of Lake Superior, those areas, when the wind blows off the lake, they get they get snow in the foot to two foot range pretty frequently, which is why areas like Marquette, Michigan, get three times more snow than we get here in the Twin Cities, pretty regularly. Sometimes even more than that. Um, but yeah, I, a body of water like uh, Lake Malax uh, could produce small. Uh, you know, I, these aren't big, heavy, crippling lake effect snow bands. But what's happening is cold air is 
washing across the relatively warm water and uh, the warm water, the warm air above the water then rises through that colder air that's blowing across it, produces a little bit of shallow convection and some of that's strong enough that you could get enhancement of snow that's already falling or in some cases snow that's falling where it otherwise would not be. We should mention a couple of uh, climate change articles that yeah. surfaced in this past week, one of which is a global group of about 11,000 scientists endorsed research that says the world is facing a climate emergency. Yeah. Yeah, so and these, are, these kinds of reports are coming fast enough now that it's probable that a lot of people won't know the difference from one to the next, right? What they're trying to do is formalize a sense of urgency because for the most part, scientists, you know, uh, just traditionally given their roles, just try and communicate the science and generally back away from hyperbole and back away from, you know, making the connection between what all of this says and what all of it means. And that's, I think, an important change. Now, we have seen with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change an increased sense of urgency in their two to three most recent assessment reports. But what this one did was it tried to craft new language and say, yeah, it's not merely climate change, it's an actual emergency, and that we're not prepared for it and we need drastic changes. What's interesting about that is it actually mimics the language of the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which said we have to change the way we use the land, we have to change the way we uh, manage our diets. I mean, it gets at how we live kind of stuff. Um, but in this particular case, this assessment uses more forceful language. There was another article that you mentioned, actually, I believe an op-ed piece that appeared. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, so basically there's an op-ed in the New York Times that also said, here's kind of why climate scientists have been underestimating climate change and some of its impacts for decades. And it's rooted in, and we can all admit this, um, you know, when you are a scientist, you have to balance the gravity of and the gravitational center of the science with all of the new things that you're learning. So as you start learning new things that are, you know, maybe uh, pretty radical or maybe pretty frightening, you kind of have to balance it against the history of science behind it too, right? So uh, you don't always just cede territory to the very newest material because that could set you up if you if it turns out that there were mistakes in that new material that kind of sets you up for some vulnerability in terms of credibility but basically in an effort to be honest brokers and be careful about latching on to certain arguments this op-ed basically claims and I'd say rightly that it has caused scientists to be a little you know a little too optimistic and some of this is also that, you know, the, the change in climate is incredibly dynamic. And I just want to let listeners know, like, I don't care how you vote. This is not political when we talk about this, but I'm, as a, you know, I am a climate scientist and I get what's going on here. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot that we didn't know about the 
really intricate interactions between, say, the ice sheets and the atmosphere. And one of the things that this op-ed discusses is how wrong we were about the amount of time it would take Antarctica to start really seeing massive and important ice ice cover changes, or Greenland, or the Arctic ice sheets in general, whether they're uh, ice caps on land or they're uh, ice cover in the ocean. We kind of underestimated a lot of that. And also, similarly, climate scientists never really saw the kind of storm power that we've been seeing, uh, never really saw that coming as a, as a soon-to-come symptom. So there was a lot of language in early climate assessments that was sort of maybe could have helped people feel okay. As in, these are things we're going to have to really worry about deep in the future, but they're not big problems yet. Or, you know, we don't think the ice sheets will become unstable for at least 100 years. Some of that is just flat out wrong. Right. Far and greater sense of urgency now, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, the easiest way for me to kind of explain this is to go into a different field. I mean, Jim, you've heard this notion of superbugs. Yes. Right. And uh, and what do you when you hear about superbugs? What's the, what are the primary causes of those? Superbugs, things that are resistant to our current treatments, resistance right. to uh, antibiotics, for example. Right. And so, using antibacterial soap everywhere, using antibiotics heavily in agriculture, over-prescribing antibiotics to the general population, these are things that the medical community knows are setting us up for disaster, right? Right. It's, it's kind of a similar, I mean, it's the best analogy I can give in that if most of us in some capacity know this, right? It doesn't necessarily change everyone's habits to know it. So you still see antibacterial soaps kind of proliferating and doing really well with multiple brands and different scents in any supermarket that you go to in any kind of big box store. Uh, so your Target or Home Depot or any, you know, you can get these. You can get hand sanitizers. You can get uh, antibacterial just about anything. And you could also get antibiotics. And sure, there have been pushes to have fewer antibiotics administered agriculturally, but we know that a lot of poultry, a lot of the animals in general are given high doses of antibiotics just for preemptive effects only because the, the losses that these producers would incur could be catastrophic. And so it's sort of an insurance policy. So we continue to take part in this system knowing, right? And we have a similar situation with the climate, which is that we have known this, but the solutions are unpalatable. I mean, we're talking about radical changes to how we live, really dialing it back. And one of the first critiques against climate scientists and against environmentalists was that, you know, we want to go back to horse and buggies or we want, which nobody wants to right. do. But initially, when the problem seemed a little more black and white, and it was just, oh, you reduce emissions, and here's what that means. It means driving less. It means considering alternative modes of transportation. It means consuming less. Uh, I don't think anyone knew how entrenched those issues would be and how quickly they would feel like, you know, kind of political signifiers, too. So here we are. 
It was true in 1980 and 1990 and 2000 that we actually were kind of on a steep upward temperature climb and we were doing so because of additional greenhouse gases and that the only way to limit those was by reducing you know, our, what we call carbon footprint now, but by reducing how much we drive and how much energy we use. But making that real in our lives is really hard. And I guess that the paper that you cited with 11,000 signatories is basically saying, okay, well, we got to do it now. So we got to get off our asses and actually do something. And I'd have to admit, they're right. We've known this for a long time and it's, it's unattractive to almost everyone I know. And I mean, nobody wants to really dial back their luxurious lifestyle especially when not everyone has a luxurious lifestyle and they're, they're just hoping to have one someday. Right. Uh, but it is, the facts haven't changed. You know, we could vote however you want and you can go through all kinds of political cycles and, you know, liberal one day, conservative the next day. But the facts of what we need to do really haven't changed. And uh, an easy solution has not come along in the interim that allows us to live the life that we want to live while emitting less. So basically in the years and decades that we have spent arguing about this and kind of, you know, acknowledging it's politically difficult, we've actually lost ground. And we are that much closer to some real, really, really difficult issues, not just globally, not just in other places, but in very familiar places. And Jim, I got to say, as you know, an active climate scientist who's just trying to understand what's happening in Minnesota, whether it has to do with our natural climate or the one that's changing. Uh, some of the some of the curveballs that we've been thrown in the last few years really make us wonder. You know, we don't know if this is just a normal variation or is it a new normal. And I hate to use that term, but you know, we don't want to be caught, you know, again, not sort of not seeing something coming just because we are being too careful. So, yeah, it's a big, tricky issue. But, yeah, I think the bottom line is that we have, in general, you know, and this might not be true where you live. Like, it doesn't mean that there's been a landslide where any given listener lives or that the, the sky is falling right where you are. But the number of symptoms and their severity globally was generally underestimated in the time frame since when we first really started talking about climate change to right now. We generally didn't, we, we were vastly underestimated that. So here we are. Well, Kenny, how can we depoliticize this issue? Is it even possible? I mean, that takes smarter people than me. I can tell you that, you know, for people who are uncomfortable talking about it, I think, you know, in my job uh, one of the things I do is you know I I try and just use common language and not blame and not make people feel bad although it is true that we all have some responsibility in sort of determining the climate and the environmental quality of the future like nobody who is alive now made this happen specifically it was something that we've all inherited based on you know the industrial and technological revolutions that have given us the lives that I think a lot of people wanted. And so I try and not blame people for it and just 
give them an assessment of where we are using common language that maybe doesn't feel political. So, you know, we don't have to talk about climate change. Let's just talk about the symptoms of change that we're seeing now. And so that's with people who are uncomfortable about it. But I think for people who aren't uncomfortable with it, it's really time to get off your ass and do something. I mean, it really is. We all can do more. So I'm not preaching that, like, I know the answer and nobody's doing it but me. It's like, there are things that we can all do, beginning with really easy things, like, um, you know, choosing, instead of buying something brand spanking new that requires extra manufacturing and packaging just for us, maybe consider if that same need could be met with something that already exists and is available used. Um, giving things extended life by reusing them. You know, something as simple as finding a second use for a, a bread bag that you're going to throw out. Um, you know, anything that sort of limits the amount of additional manufacturing is probably good. Uh, as much as people in the manufacturing sector hate to hear that, you know, we are producing too much and our landfills are filling up anyway, so it's a good way to kind of help multiple purposes. Driving less, you know, you don't have to become a vegetarian tomorrow, but maybe what we could all do is think like, do I need meat with this meal? Is this one where I could maybe just have a salad and not have meat? Or is this one where I could have something else? Um, so I think it's a multi-pronged approach between, you know, kind of helping people who are uncomfortable with it get comfortable on their own terms and then really encouraging the people who say they're already comfortable with it and are up in arms about, about you know, what's not being done at the, at the federal level or in the federal government or in the Trump administration. Like, those people, if, if they feel really strongly about it, they should be doing more and not just yelling about it. And so, and I think that's the low-hanging fruit is actually all the people, I think we all know them, um, and we may be them, who uh, talk a good game about, you know, climate change and environmental stewardship, but don't necessarily do a whole heck of a lot. They don't practice what they preach often either. Yeah, and, I, and I'm just going to throw in a, a we about, you know, right. I think we're all in, in shades, we're all sort of guilty of that. Yes. So these articles, Jim, I think they're, they're really starting to bring out the fact that we can't, we can't do that anymore. And certainly the opportunity is there for the people who are already on board to, to really step up. You know, I mean, I know that there's, there's a small number of very devoted activists out there who are already living kind of minimally and are really doing their best to reduce waste. But we have to accept that these, these people are heroic, uh, sort of lifestyle minorities and they are not they, this is not uh, by any means a mainstream practice and that and there's a lot more that we could do and they a lot of them are trying to show us how we could do it without huge sacrifices to our you know comfort standard of living well we do see efforts made at local levels some people who are uh, trying at least individually to lessen their carbon footprint, doing a better job with recycling, as you say, reuse. The one thing that really strikes me is how our society has become so disposable with regard to consumer electronics. There was a day when I remember, and I'm not being sexist here because I never saw an example of someone who was not the TV repair man, Oh, sure. but I remember, you know, somebody coming to the house with a, a big 
box of tubes and testers, and yeah, they just switch out the bad yeah. tube and TV's back. Yeah, the TV repair person. Yes, yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. Yeah. yeah, they used to fix out the fix the electronics, and now same, yep, same thing with radio back right. in the day. And you know, and and there's a calculation in throwing away your phone because you know that if you go to repair it, it's going to be obsolete quite likely in a generation or two. Right. And we're talking a generation of that particular phone. Yeah, so I mean, we have become disposable minded and you know and with that has come I think more conscientiousness about you know setting up electronics recycling facilities setting up but again we have to remember too we live in the Twin Cities in Minnesota which is kind of near the leadership tier uh, in this regard in the other states you won't see any of this you won't see electronics recycling you won't see recycling and you know also I don't want to totally naysay on recycling, but it was always the third R. Of the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, recycling is always the third R because it's it's the most sort of jury still out in terms of its environmental, total environmental benefits because there's an extensive cleansing process that has to go on before recycled goods, and sometimes it's essentially a renewed manufacturing process. So before recycled goods can be repurposed, they have to be processed, often heated, often chemically treated. And this is energy intensive also. So the, the more important two R's are the reducing and reusing. And those are the ones that, where we have real opportunity. And that, because that's where people have been real hesitant to step it up. We are obsessed with buying new stuff. It's mind boggling, you know? And, uh, I appreciate all the manufacturers out there who are trying to put good products in people's hands, but honestly, there's far more cars than we need right now. I mean, there's far more. There's so many used cars, perfectly good used cars out there. And the same is true with bicycles, and you know I have a soft spot for bicycles. Oh, yes. And I love looking at new bikes, but, you know, truthfully, there are shops that are set up just to restore and sell used bikes, and they're perfectly good. And... Uh, and a lot of times that's all you need and you'll save some money too. And you'll give something that already exists some new life. And so I think, you know, we also have to kind of get away with from this idea that we we all need new things. And you know, I'm over I'm out of my league here a bit because this is the, the domain of people who are, you know, environmental sustainability stewards and they are spokespeople for it and they're up to date on everything. But I just know that, you know, at the core of the recommendations that are tied to all of this alarm, which is quite legitimate about where we sit uh, in terms of the, you know, burgeoning climate change issues, it, it all does come down to the lifestyle and some very simple choices that we make. And, and it, I think it's just time that we, we look at them honestly and not keep running away. It's so much easier to run away and we all want to, and it's easier to not think about it, but, you know, uh, Again, beginning with very simple things that we could just reuse, repurpose in our lives. We'd all save money, too, if we did that. Well, so. Kenny, we'll revisit this topic again in a future episode. Absolutely. But uh, looking ahead for the week, yeah. uh, what's on tap? Yes. Okay, so we've got the bottom is going to fall out on Monday and Tuesday. The temperatures are going to drop. They're going to be probably below zero in the morning in northern Minnesota. And in the single digits or teens depending on where you are in the southern part of the state. 
and temperatures will be hard-pressed to get out of the teens on Monday anywhere in the state. It's going to be cold, and we'll probably get into the teens or 20s uh, on Tuesday. And after that, the temperatures will moderate. It will become less cold for a couple few days, but by the next weekend, you know, we could have temperatures approaching the melting mark and then exceeding it and I don't mean just the high temperatures, but by you know one week or so from now, we could be all the way above freezing, both low temperatures and high temperatures. So uh, a milder trend looks quite likely. In fact, whether it's the European model or the global forecast system, GFS model, or even the climate forecast system model, which is this one that tries to see out a month, there's a pretty strong signal that the last part of November you know, probably beginning 16th, 17th, 18th, somewhere in there, it's going to be a lot warmer. A lot warmer than the first half. In fact, I would bet that the second half of November is warmer than the first half of November. All right, all right. And no big snowstorms, I assume, on the horizon at this yeah, point. There's some more nuisance precipitation events coming. Um, it looks like uh, within a week or two, though, we might be talking about liquid precipitation again. And now we have built some ground frost. There is some ice accumulated below the surface now. So that could be a problem if we do get rain because there's, there wasn't any soil capacity for water anyway, but now it's just solid. Wow. <laughs> so so oh we have my to watch goodness. out for heavy rain. All right. Well, this is way over our heads, a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist, and I either have a cold or allergies. I'm not sure which. Which but, one do you uh, hope it is, Jim? I hope it's allergies because, yeah. uh, well, maybe. I guess I maybe hope I, it's I allergies, hope it's, too. I don't want that Yeah, stuff. oh, I'm not going to pass it to you, Kenny. <laughs> I, don't think I'm, I don't think I'm contagious. All right, well, Kenny, great talking with you, and we'll uh, connect with you again next yeah, week. Yeah, of course. Have a great week, Jim. Thank you.